And off they go. Well, good morning, Mount Calvary Church. Uh, we are so thankful that we can worship together today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 14, and so if you have a Bible and can turn there, we've been walking through 1 Samuel this summer. We're going to continue to do that this fall. This morning, we are in 1 Samuel 14. Uh, this morning's chapter has a whopping 52 verses. Um, don't worry, I won't be reading the whole chapter uh, but instead, we're going to focus on the first 23 verses, and then we'll talk through the second half uh, later this morning or maybe next week. Um, if you remember last week, uh, we left uh, the sermon and the passage in 1 Samuel 13 with a daunting, overwhelming cliffhanger. And so if you remember, just to think through what happened last week, Saul and Israel were in a very sorry state. Saul was tall, and he was handsome, and he was the king that was chosen to fight their battles. Yet we saw last week in chapter 13 that he has been disqualified. Disqualified. That the storm, as we called it, the circumstances that were kind of coming towards Israel, the Philistines, the, the raiders who were coming after them, the Israelites are hiding in caves those that are left are weaponless. They're directionless. They've been waiting for Samuel to come. Remember, he's waiting seven days. Where is, where is, the, where is he coming? Where's the priest going to come and give us the direction of God and what we're supposed to do? And Saul is waiting, and he is waiting. And at this critical moment, Saul makes the wrong decision. He chooses to trust his judgment and his understanding of this overwhelming storm that is just coming over them instead of waiting and hearing the direction and the word of God. And so though he waits the seven days, he doesn't wait until Samuel gets there and he makes this decision to illegitimately offer a sacrifice to take the place of God and to take the place of the priest. And so he is disqualified. And so this is really where we're left in 1 Samuel 13. The Philistines are still surrounding the Israelites, waiting for them to come out of the caves. They have no weapons. They have no direction. Saul is still their leader. And you're left at the end of chapter 13 with not a lot of hope. I mean, what, what, what are we going to do? How are we going to get out of this? And so it is in this moment, in this low point, that God shows up and works. And so we'll read the first 23 verses, and then we'll pray. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah and the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sinya. And the one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. 
It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. The men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us, we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer it killed them after him. And the, their, that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within it, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp and in the field <clears throat> and among all the people and the, the garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there and Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who is gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Hijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. And Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden, <clears throat> had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come before you this morning. We need your help. As I speak, as we listen, as we seek to understand and to believe and to obey your word, God, we need your help. And so we seek it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the phrase that I used multiple times last week as we looked at these, these Philistines coming and descending upon Israel was the phrase, all the odds are against us. And how this storm was just building up the, the warriors that were coming. They had no weapons. They had no direction. And so the phrase that we used was all the odds are against us. And I used that phrase to describe the invasion at Normandy. And if you remember last week, as we talked about D-Day, as General Eisenhower came up with this, this unlikely invasion where all the odds were against the Allies as they landed on those beaches that day. And how it's not just 
Israel feeling like? I mean, things are just caving down upon us. It wasn't just the allies that were feeling. Man, all the odds are against us. We are overwhelmed with the circumstances, but it's us too, right? There's all of us at times where we look at our circumstances in our life and we just feel, how are we going to do this? How can I handle all that I am facing? It's especially the the allies that morning were feeling that. As I was studying D-Day and the invasion at Normandy, I was surprised at how even General Eisenhower himself thought that they were going into an invasion that morning that they were going to lose. He was not feeling optimistic about the prospects of victory. And it's told that on the 5th of the 6th of June, uh, that one of the, it was the 5th June the 5th, that morning, he was so anxious that he actually penned a letter apologizing or taking ownership of the defeat of the Allies, though it had not happened yet. We actually have a copy of this letter that we're very thankful was never sent. And he actually dated it wrong. He crosses things out. But here's some of the lines from this letter. He says, our landings have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was based upon the best information available. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all the bravery and devotion that duty can do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. I mean, this is the, this is the feeling. Even the general himself feeling overwhelmed like this is not looking good. The, the weather in the channel, the Germans that are waiting for us, the Atlantic Wall, all of these things, feelings of hopelessness. And the question we asked last week is, what, what do we do in that moment? Right? How do we handle when, when that's the feeling? We're overwhelmed. Where do we turn and how do we respond? And so you think back to June 5th, that year of the invasion, when the U.S. citizens, Americans, found out that this invasion was happening, what, what do you do? I mean, how do you wait that out? And I found an address that was made by our president at the time, FDR, on June 6th at 9.57. He got on the radio waves, and it said that, that thousands upon thousands of families across the United States gathered in their kitchens and their living rooms and turned on their radios and listened to this speech. But what was interesting, it wasn't even a speech. FDR prayed. It was a prayer of desperation. And hear this prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, to set free a suffering humanity. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. Oh, Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Thy will be done, almighty God, amen. I mean, what, what a prayer of faith of saying, God, we need your help. 
So what do we, what do, we do when, when it feel, we feel overwhelmed? This is the kind of prayer. Give us faith. We need your blessing. And as I read that prayer, and I listened to that prayer, the actual prayer that he prayed on the airwaves, I couldn't help but think that this was the mindset of Jonathan as he hung out in that cave. And what do you do? You go to God and you depend on him. And I think what we're going to see in this passage is we're going to see how, how do we respond to this, right? We wait for God. We talked about that last week with Saul, what he failed to do. This morning, we get a positive example. How do we handle it? Let's look to Jonathan. And so we're going to see two different mindsets, okay? The mindset of Jonathan in the first 23 verses, but then we see, again, a negative example in verses 24 through 52 with, with Saul, and so when I say mindset, what I'm saying is, is Jonathan has a particular belief, theology, presuppositions that he believes that he holds on to, that, that impacts and informs how he's going to react, though the storm is right above him. And so that's what I mean by mindset. But let's look and see what Jonathan does. Chapter 14, I like how it just, it just starts one day, Jonathan just decides to get up and to go do something about the mess that they're in. Just as one day, they're sitting on their hands, they're kind of waiting it out, and he says, well, I, I'm going to get up and I'm going to let God fix the mess that I'm in. We know at this point, Jonathan has no idea how God's going to do it. Right? He doesn't know this is what God's going to do. God's told me what's going to happen. He just decides that God... God is going to change the situation that we're in. And there's a strong contrast here, like there's been for the last couple chapters between Jonathan, the kind of leader that Jonathan is, and the kind of leader that Saul is. What is Saul doing? Well, Jonathan gets up, goes out to go to fight for God and let God work. What is Saul doing? I mean, he's in the dark. He's in the dark in so many different ways. What, what kind of leader is that? Jonathan doesn't tell him. The text tells us it's not surprising that Jonathan doesn't tell Saul. Saul's going to get his trumpet out again. What's he going to do? Like, he doesn't tell Saul. Saul's in the dark because he's in the cave, the pomegranate cave. What an interesting cave that is. I don't really know what kind of cave that is. But Saul, it says Saul is, is sitting in the cave. He's staying in the cave. The Hebrew word for staying is the same word for sitting. Literally, Saul is just sitting in the dark. We get this description of the people that he has around him, the priest, Ahijah. Again, if these aren't good people. You look at through the relatives with Eli and Phineas and Ichabod, and these are, these are people that are walking in the dark. So Saul is literally sitting in the dark. He's in the dark about what God is doing with Jonathan, and he's got darkness all around him. And this is the picture of the king. Then in verse 4 and 5, we're given some geographic details. It's like, I mean, you're reading, you're like, why are we told this? Right? You, you remember the rocky crags, the description? I mean, it, the picture is he is, he is, sitting, he is sitting looking upon, upon this mountain, and these two major rocky cliffs are before him, Bozes, Bezos, and then Senya. Slippery and thorny would be the names of these two 
these two uh, rocky mountains. In other words, what the point that's trying to be made is just another element to the storm that is facing Israel. That they have this geographical, mountainous, rocky peak that's almost unable to be climbed. And so here's, this is the picture. This is how I pictured it, that Jonathan is with his armor bearer. And, and the text doesn't say this, but I picture him putting his arm around his armor bearer. Almost, uh, I pictured a, uh, a Lord of the Rings moment. Frodo and Bilbo looking into Mordor. You, I, okay, all right. And they're looking, and it's this overwhelming scene, right? This overwhelming scene. You've got this rocky mountain. You can hear the Philistines. It's just two guys. Okay, what are we going to do in the storm? How are are we, Jonathan and his armor bearer, going to do anything about this mess that they're in? And then we get the most incredible verse of this chapter, verse 6. And listen, I had planned to to teach through all 52 verses today somehow. And I get to verse 6. I couldn't get past verse 6, so I don't know how we're going to do it. But look at what Jonathan says to his armor bearer. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That last line one more time. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I mean, this is the key to to everything we're going to see that Jonathan does. This is his mindset in one verse, in one sentence. This is the theology of Jonathan that is going to empower him to climb this mountain and to go defeat the Philistines. And so this, this isn't just the mindset of Jonathan, but I'll let you know this is the application of the text this morning. We're not seeking to hear how God's going to direct us to certain things. Uh, to me, this, this is the application. How might we embrace this mindset, have this mindset for whatever storm we face, that we could be like Jonathan in the face of what he faced for us today. And so let's look at this mindset. I broke it down into three phrases. The middle phrase, I'll put it on the screen. This is the theology. I mean, this is, this is his belief in the character of God. What does it say? For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. This phrase is the foundation for his belief in the first part of that verse. So th- this is everything to him. This is what he This is his anchor. Okay, so what does this little phrase teach us about what he believes about God? First it says, for nothing can hinder. So this speaks to Jonathan's belief about God's power. For nothing can hinder God. That's saying, I believe in the unstoppable power of God to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. His plans don't get hindered. How often does your, do your plans get hindered? I mean, we put things on our calendar. I get the, or get the kids ready for the swimming pool. I mean, that's a process. Suntan lotion and all the stuff that you've got to do. And then what happens? Dad finally gets the kids ready, and here comes the storm cloud. And it's like, well, 
We're not going to the pool today. Plans change all the time. Our plans are hindered. What can hinder us from doing what we want to do? A phone call, a flat tire, a sick child, anything. Always our plans are hindered because we don't have the power to accomplish everything we want to accomplish. And so what what do we learn about the power of God? God accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. His power is unstoppable. And so this is what Jonathan believes in. Who can hinder the Lord? Another way Scripture teaches about God's power is through another question. Not who can hinder the Lord, but who is able to stop the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? How's that for a great question? Genesis 18, 14. God says to Abraham and to Sarah, she tells him, you're going to have a child, and you're old, and you, you may not think this is likely, but he says, is anything too hard for God? I mean, again, for us, if we were to think about our power and ability, we would say, is anything too hard for, for me? Oh, yeah. There's plenty of things all the time that we say, yeah, that's too hard for me. I can't run that race or do that exercise or get this job or accomplish this task or to get this or to do that. We would say, that, that's too hard for me. I was trimming a tree, taking off a tree branch this weekend, and I borrowed a, a chainsaw from a friend, from Jonathan. He's my go-to. And I was standing up on, on our fence, to this big uh, branch hanging into our yard. And I thought, this is definitely not the, the right way of doing this. Standing on top of the fence, balancing myself with the branch that I'm cutting off with the chainsaw. Um, yeah, it was questionable. And my son Truman comes out to help. He is 10, 10 years old today. And so he came, he came out, this was on Friday, and he said, Dad, I want to help. I got the branch down. I didn't fall unbelievably, and I'm now chopping the tree branch into pieces to, to get rid of, and I have the chainsaw, and, and Truman looks at me and says, Dad, I want to do the chainsaw, and I look to our house. I says, Mom watching, <laughs> and so I give him the chainsaw. He's 10, right, and he starts to go through the tree. He starts to go through the branch, I mean, he's shaking, and it comes out. I'm like, you're about to chop your leg off, son. I said, give me the chainsaw. This is too hard for you, and it's okay. It's too hard for me, clearly. Okay, it's okay. We can admit and acknowledge that there are things that are too hard for us. But listen, nothing is too hard for God. That's what he's saying here to Abraham and Sarah. Old people who are having a baby, he says, is your age going to stop me? Is your doubt going to stop me? Your laughter going to stop me? Your sin going to stop me? Your disbelief going to stop me? The circumstance is going to stop No, nothing is too hard for me. And so this, this is what Jonathan is banking on. He is clinging to this, that God is all-powerful. Nothing can hinder him. But what else is he banking on? What is the power being wielded or funneled to do in this statement that Jonathan makes? For nothing can hinder the Lord from what? From saving. He's saying, my foundation, 
my cornerstone is my God is mighty to save. And what is he? He's thinking about all the history that the Israelites, that he grew up hearing about. How Israel was taken from the clutches of Pharaoh. How they were marched through the Red Sea. He's thinking back to the Philistines and earlier parts of 1 Samuel where, where God thundered and won this battle for the Israelites. And he's saying, my, my theology, my foundation is, my God is mighty to save. This is who he is. This is who my God is. And so I cling to it. And it is through this foundation, okay, th- this theological foundation that he can now say the first part of verse six. So look at the first part. It may be that the Lord will work for us. It may be that the Lord will work for us. And so what we see is his, his theology, his understanding of the character of God gives him hope for how God's going to work in his present circumstance, right? His theology of who God is, he is powerful to save gives him the hope to be able to say, because of who God is, this is who he is all the time. My hope is that he will work in this present circumstance. And you know what I love about this this first phrase? Is it doesn't say God will absolutely work for us. What does it say? It may be. It's like, I mean, I hope God works for us. Maybe your version says, perhaps, I like that word, perhaps God will work for us. He's not presuming upon God's power and God's saving power to work in this situation. He's saying, this is who God is, and I hope, I have expectation, I have faith that God will work in this present circumstance, but I think he recognizes that he doesn't, he, he doesn't demand God to work. Right? It, it, he's not telling God, you must do this. No, no. Very careful not to do that. Recognizing he doesn't know what God's doing in this, this storm with the, the Rocky Mountain and the Philistines. And so he's saying, my hope and my prayer based on the character of God is that God will save us in this moment. But there's this question of, what well, will he? I think of Daniel and the boys in the fire in Daniel chapter 3. What do they say? God is able to deliver us if we get thrown in this furnace. He is powerful enough to do it. But then what do they say in 18? But if not, like he may not. He may not do what I think he could, or I know he can do. He may not do it in this moment. But even if he doesn't, I will not worship your God like what Jesus says in Matthew 26, 53, as he's being arrested and being prepared to be crucified. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? God could do this. I mean, he, he could do, he is able to do that, but, but he doesn't. So we don't presume upon what God is going to do, even though we know who he is. There's an element of trust and faith and holding on to who he is. And then look at the last phrase. We don't presume how God's going to save us. Recognizing God could do anything in our circumstances. He, he could do it by many or by few. Jonathan is saying, hey, armor bearer, 
He could use just the two of us. He could use just me. He could use 10,000 Israelites that come out of the caves. Or guess what? God could use none of us. He could use his spoken word. He could use the thunder. He could use the trees or the animals. He could do, he could do this any way that he chooses. He doesn't need weapons. Like that was a big deal. Remember, they had shovels and rakes. God doesn't need shovels and rakes. He doesn't need swords and spears. God can save any way that he chooses to save. But th this is the mindset. I'll put it on the screen. Being rooted in the character of God gives hope for the work of God. For you and for me, being rooted in who God is gives us hope for the work of God today. But we recognize God could work in so many different ways, but we trust in who he is. And for us Christians, just, just and as I was thinking about this, for us Christians, how much more should our hope be based on, be based on the character of God in his ability to save and his, and his power? Our, our hope should be so much more than Jonathan. Right? We don't, when we think of this for us today, God's ability, his, his power, and his, his love in saving us. Okay? We don't look back to the Exodus, and we don't look back to the Red Sea, but we look to the red blood of Jesus. Right? That's our foundation. That's our example of God's power and God's love and kindness to save us. Not the Red Sea, but the red blood of Jesus. That's where we see God's power and love collide. That he sent his son to take the full wrath of God. For, for you and for me, God's power and his love and desire to save you. In whatever mess you're in, we see it at the cross. Okay, and so that's the theology. That's the foundation. God's power is so, it is so powerful that he became powerless to die on the cross because he loves you and he wants to save you out of your mess. And now all of a sudden, guys, we, we hear this. And now we have this confidence, right? This is what we're gonna see with Jonathan in just a second. But you, you have this rich theology about the power of God and the love of God in saving us, and we, we have this confidence. Even though we have storms, maybe, maybe it's cancer that you face. Listen, God is mighty to save, and he could use chemotherapy, but he might not. God could use a miracle, but, but he might not. We, we don't presume upon God's power to save in our circumstances, yet even if cancer has the last word, that we, we, don't, we don't have to blink an eye that we can stand up in a funeral and say, still say, God is mighty to save, period. That though cancer won this, this little battle, at the end of the day, what do we believe about cancer? That, yeah, it may take your last breath, but it doesn't take your body. 2 Corinthians 5 teaches us that when your tent folds and your body is done, that we are given by God a new, imperishable, spiritual, eternal body made by God. And so our hope and our trust is God is mighty to say, will he in this, in this storm that I face? Will he do it? 
I can hope and I can have faith, but I know with confidence that the last word, God's character will shine brightly. And so this is what we see with Jonathan. I mean, you just see this, this confidence with him. It's just him and his little buddy, and they're looking at this mountain. Like, he's not nervous. Right? He's rooted in who God is. And look at, look at what he does. He says, here's the plan. We're going to climb up the Rocky Mountain, and we're going to show ourselves to the Philistines. And, and if they say, come down here, then we're going to say that, that is a sign from God that he's going to give us victory. But if they want to come up to us, we're going to say, we're not going to do that. And so they show themselves to the Philistines. Uh, the Philistines probably are mocking them with their words. If you go back and look at it, they're not praising them. It's almost like, look, here come the cavemen. Here they come. And he says, they say, come, we want to show you a thing. Like, what's the thing? Most think it's probably them saying, hey, we want to come down here. You two come down here, and we'll, we're going to teach you a lesson. And so at that point, that's all Jonathan needs to hear. He steps up first. I love that. Verse 12, he steps in front of his armor bearer. What a leader. He said, I'm going to go down armor bearer. You follow me. I mean, again, the contrast between Jonathan and Saul, it is, it is so, there are so many differences. And he goes down and they strike down the 20. There's panic in the camp. By the time Saul gets out there, I mean, it is just chaos. And guess what? They're not even using weapons. Again, God shows up and saves in the situation, and they don't even need their shovels. Verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day. And then you compare this to Saul. We've got a whole lot to go, and maybe we'll talk about it next week. But you look at what Saul does. The contrast is so different. Saul gets up there, and he says, he makes an oath. Look at the oath in verse 24. They win that battle, and now it's Saul's chance to show us how do you handle the storm? And he makes a foolish oath. Verse 24, the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening. And I am avenged of my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. I mean, it's a foolish, foolish oath. It says that the text says that Saul caused the men of Israel to be hard-pressed. Does that ring a bell for anyone? Last week, hopefully, yeah, you remember this. Last week, the Philistines were causing the Israelites, the same word, to be hard-pressed. Now, Saul is the one that is causing them to be hard-pressed. This is not a good look for Saul. He makes a foolish oath. You're not going to eat. What's his motivation? So that I can avenge my enemies. You talk about a selfish, focused leader who's whose entire outlook is, I want vengeance for myself. And you compare verse 24 to the verse we've been looking at, verse 6, in Jonathan's mindset, and I mean, you see a world of difference. And this oath causes all sorts of bad things. The people are exhausted in verse 28. In verse 32, the people, I mean, they're still fighting the Philistines. And and so they're so hungry, but they're trying to follow the oath, and they don't know what to do. And so they end up eating, eating the spoils of, of the victory, breaking the wall that God has given them about eating these animals. But they don't care because they, they are starving. And then verse 42, Saul, or Jonathan, has some honey on the tip of his staff, and he didn't hear the oath. And so all this, this, this foolish oath almost kills Jonathan, his son. 
And this is the difference between a mindset. Right? This is the difference. This is victory or failure. And when our mindset of the storm is not, how do I fix it? How do I get out of this? I want free, I want vengeance. I want to make things right. Versus Jonathan who says, God, you're all powerful. And you love me enough to save me. And you could save me in this. And you could do it any, any way you want. And I will trust you. And so for you this morning, that is the mindset. It's not that God would fix every situation, right? It's not that God would fix and give us this and solve this. It's that we, we would attach ourselves to the loving kindness of God's character and his ability to save and in his almighty power. And that we would we'd walk out today just with confidence that this is who God is and that he will make a way. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful this morning for your word. And I pray that you would help us in whatever we face to have this kind of mindset that Jonathan had, rooted in the theology of who you are. God, you are all-powerful. All-powerful. And you're so powerful that you chose to become powerless on the cross because you love us and you want to save us from the mess that we're in. And if we would just confess our sin and cry out to you and believe in your son, Jesus Christ, that we'd be saved. And so, God, I pray that we would, we would cling to who you are, that we can face whatever we face with confidence in who you are. We thank you for the cross, and now we sing Hallelujah for the cross. May our heart be overwhelmed with gratitude of who, who you are for us in Jesus, that we could leave this place in confidence of who you are. Amen.